The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Remain standing this morning in reverence of reading the Word of God. After the reading, would you remain standing? This morning we'll be reading Hosea chapter 11, verses 8 and 9. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboiim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God, and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Remain standing, please. We pray together one more time. Father God, we need you as desperately in this moment as in any other. We are not capable of doing what must be done. I am not capable of faithfully handling and preaching your word, and these people are not capable of rightly hearing and responding to your word unless you act, unless you send your spirit, unless you do what only you can do. So we ask you to do that now, Father, for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Open your Bible. Oh, stay up, stay up, stay up, stay up, stay up. <laughs> Open your Bibles with me, please. Ephesians chapter 2. We continue on in verses 1 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. This is the inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative, holy word of God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Now, please be seated. So we spent something like three and a half weeks wrestling with those first three verses there in Ephesians chapter 2 and really trying to come to grips with the incredibly bleak and hopeless perhaps picture that the Apostle Paul paints for us with regards to the state of all humanity, all mankind lost in their sin, 
alienated from God, dead, unable to do anything about their circumstances. And he left us in a position where hopefully if you were paying attention and trusting what God's word has to say, you would have realized that if hope's going to come, if, if help is going to show up, it must be from somewhere outside of us. Not just outside of us individually, but outside of this world. Because we, along with the rest of the world, are following a path, a direction, a course, after the prince of the power of the air, the evil one, the enemy, who is called the devil. Then we came to verse 4 last week, about midway through our sermon last week. And when I became a pastor, I, there were certain things I wasn't going to do. There were certain things I wasn't going to say. There were certain caricatures of preachers that weren't going to happen. And one of those was preachers always seem to say the name of God differently from all other words. And I looked up about two years into my time as your pastor, and I realized every time I get to the name of God, there's just a wait. But God. We came to the but God. And we just, just rehearsed together last week what it meant. What a, what a light breaking in through utter darkness is this but God. That help had to have come from outside of man, and help did come from outside of man. Help had to come from outside of anyone trapped within the path of this world, and it did. It came from God. But God says that he raised us up. He did something to change our situation. He raised us up. Well, that certainly changes things, doesn't it? You were dead in sin, and he made us alive. And so, at very least, he returned us to the state before sin. But he goes further than that, doesn't he? Recognizing that there was even more than that that God had awaiting those. When he says that I have not destined you for wrath, but unto salvation, this means much more than just a return to innocence. Much more than just a return to some neutral state. What does he say? He has risen us up and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? What's the purpose? He just wants us to be alive and running around. He just wants us to be good little boys and girls. Oh, no. Verse 7 says, so that, what's the purpose? Why did this but God come crashing in? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's the purpose. So the question that I seek to answer this morning is, why in the world would God do such a thing? Now, it is the immediate answer of natural man, fleshly man, frankly, Many who call themselves Christian, it's the immediate answer to say, of course God has given us life. Of course he has forgiven our treason. And of course he is destined to spend all eternity pouring his gifts upon us. That's his job. Because we've turned God into some type of permissive old grandfather. Or, or maybe it's, it's a bit like child support. He made us and so he's got to bless us. You created us. We didn't ask to be born. And so it's your job, God, to forgive us. It's your job to overlook our offense. It's your job to welcome us into your kingdom and spend all of eternity blessing us. Well, you of all people know the silliness in this. You know that this is to completely miss the nature of sin. That which is of such absolute abhorrence, of abhorrence to the Lord, not just because we have broken some rules, but because we have rejected his glory. We have hated his nature. And it's to miss 
who God is in his very being is one that is infinitely holy. He can't scoff at, he can't wink at, he can't, he can't just overlook something like this. That would be to agree with the sinner. That would be to make a light of his own glory. You spend any time studying this word, you recognize immediately that God can no more just pass over sin than he can't deny his own nature. So again, the question is, why would God do this? Why would God choose not only to not destroy us in our sin, not only to raise us to life, but to mark us out, to place a seal upon us, to set us aside and destine us for an eternity of pleasures in his presence? Understanding all that we've said of Adam and Eve, all that we have said of us, all that we have said of the whole of mankind. Why would God do such a thing for men who had made themselves his enemy? I submit to you that a true and biblical understanding of the answer to this question is absolutely critical, not only to assurance, assurance of your hope in him, but of real joy, lasting and enduring joy in this world, no matter what happens. And you see, our flesh desperately wants the answer to be something within us. We want God to have seen just something in us. Now look, we know that no man is saved by works of the law. We know that we cannot earn salvation. We know that there's nothing that we can do in our own power to be made right with God. But, but deep down, in the deepest recesses of that flesh that still remains, we can't help but think, surely there was something lovable in me. Surely there was something that God saw, or at least a potential for something that God saw in me that caused him to set me aside like this. Let's be honest. Who wants to be loved, not because of, but in spite of who you are? But that's exactly what scripture says. Over and over and over again. That God has done this truly remarkable thing, not because of anything within us, but absolutely and 100% because of what is within him. Because of his own nature. One of, the, one, of the, one of the helpful hints, one of the, the helpful ways in which you ought to approach Scripture, it's, it's like being a detective at times, isn't it? Or a, or a, or a scientist of some sort. You, you look and man comes into the scenario dead in sin, alienated from God, enemies destined to wrath. He comes out the backside, adopted children of God with an eternity waiting for them, an immeasurable kindnesses of God waiting for them. Now, any good scientist, any good investigator, any good detective, what would he do? He'd say, okay, what changed in between these two things? You were here, now you're here. Is there an answer to what happened? What's the difference between those two things? Well, you don't have to be a genius. You don't have to be a theologian or a pastor or a Bible scholar to just look at the page and see what changed. But God, being rich in mercy, of the great love with which he loved us. That's the only answer that God provides us here. Nothing on our part. Nothing we had done. Nothing in our nature. No, no prospects of us doing anything. There's only one thing that changed our situation from the depths of Sheol to the heights of heaven. But God. Not just but God, but something in God's nature. That he's a merciful God. But ultimately, God's love for you is not grounded in you, 
but in himself. I want you to think back to over and over and over again, three times the phrase that was repeated in this first chapter, to the praise of the glory of his grace. It's all about God's grace. And grace by its nature is a thing that is unmerited, a thing that cannot be earned or, or worked for. That everything good that we have read about in this first chapter and a half of Ephesians, that his loving of us, his setting us aside, his calling us out, his predestining us, his adopting us, his redeeming us, his sealing us with his spirit for a guarantee of an inheritance in heaven, that all of these things are bound up, not in us, but in him, his merciful nature. So my hope this morning is that I would be able to show you why this is the most glorious news, the most encouraging news in all the universe. Because again, I tell you, your flesh recoils at this. Mine does. We want there to be something lovable in us. We want there to be some explanation. Even set that aside, that we want there to be something lovable in us. We want some explanation for why others have not yet been brought in. But I hope to show you this morning why this is the most wonderful news in all the universe. The kind of thing that would cause the Apostle Paul to use up a full quarter of this text. Pointing our eyes towards it with the hope that we would join him in his doxology. We would join him in his worship. We would join him in his praise. That we would learn to suffer like the Apostle Paul while never losing the faith. While being able to count it joy to suffer for his sake. So the text goes like this. But God. Being rich in mercy. Now there's a, there's a number of words there I would draw your attention to. You see the word mercy there, and then you see the word love twice, and then if you skip down a little bit, he talks about kindness, and then of course the whole thing kind of falls under the umbrella of the word grace. Now generally within the Christian vernacular, these words are used almost interchangeably. We just think of them in general as a way in which God gives himself over to man. And we'll explain, we'll explore each of these in greater detail when God brings us to those particular passages. But kindness, we, we might think of in just the broadest terms. Almost just the most generic statement of God's goodness towards someone. And kindnesses can be big or small, can't they? Just think about with, with amongst men. I can be kind to you by opening a door. Or I can be kind to you by giving you a kidney. There's, there's, there's a pretty big gap between those things, but kindness is just, it's an act of goodness. It's a kindness that's been done. And then, and then the word grace, it's also a fairly broad term. It can also point to any number of things like God causing the rain to fall on men or God causing them to be brought to life. Grace, again, is a, a broad term covering a wide gamut of goodnesses, if that's a word, that God might pour into the life of man. But again, I remind you that grace is a thing that by its nature is unmerited. It's unwarranted. It's, it's completely on behalf of the giver to decide to give the grace, never on behalf of the recipient to demand it. But what about the word mercy? That's the one we're going to focus in on this morning. But God, being rich in mercy. This is something about the nature of God. But we've got to ask, what does that word tell us about who God is? What does the word mercy mean? Well, mercy in the Old Testament, one of the primary words that's used in the Old Testament is the word rahamim. It means mercy or pity or compassion. It's, it's God's goodness towards those who are suffering. This is, you, you see a picture of this in some ways in the New Testament when blind Bartimaeus calls out to Jesus and he says, Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy 
on me. I need your goodness towards me because I'm suffering. Have pity on me. Have compassion on me. Pour your goodness into my life to improve my suffering. Now the root word there is rahem. It's where we get the word womb from in the Old Testament, womb. You think about what perhaps God is showing us there. You think about the state of a baby inside his mother's womb. It's pretty pitiful and helpless and should drive us to compassion. Sadly, that's not so much the case in the world we live right now. But we should look upon a baby. If if no one else in all the universe, we, we should look upon a baby in their mother's womb and recognize they are helpless and pitiful and desperate. Unless we do good for them, there's nothing they can do for themselves. I think that that's perhaps a good picture of what we are meant to see here when we think about the mercy of God. Those of you who have been coming on Wednesday nights, and let me just go ahead and make a pitch right now. Let's let's put a parenthetical statement I'm fixing to make right here. I have never wanted to command of you anything that's not commanded in Scripture. I'm not allowed to do that, frankly. And and God's word makes clear that we are not to forsake the gathering together of the saints. You read all the one another's in scripture, and it is clear that God has commanded us to gather together as a body. And we do that. This is the main gathering that happens right here. So I have every right, based on the Bible, to look to you and say, you've got to be here. It's a problem for you not to be here on Sunday morning. We don't find him saying you've got to be here two times on Sunday. We don't find him saying you've got to gather together for the prayer meeting on Wednesday. And I know myself to be, I can be harsh sometimes. If I think I see something in the Bible, I can take something which is my own personal conviction and I can just ram it down people's throat. And so whenever we started talking about our Wednesday night gatherings and our Sunday night gatherings, I was perhaps a little too lax in saying, hey, do what you want. Now, I can't look to you and say, if you don't come on Sunday night, you're a bad person. You're a bad Christian. You're sinning against God. But I'm afraid that because I've spoken about it as such a, hey, it's a matter of conviction for you, that there are probably some people that God would have come on Sunday night. And you're not because I haven't looked you in the eye and told you there's blessing here. You're, you're missing out on something. If I can go a step further, we live in a day and age where there is more information coming into our ears than ever before. I've confessed to you that I don't take a shower without listening to a podcast. We are consuming more information than in any other time in the history of the world. And for centuries before, the people of God gathered together in the house of God, not two times on Sunday, but three, but four, but five sometimes. So what we've done is we have taken ourselves, the church of Christ, we placed ourselves in a time when we have got more junk coming at us than ever before. And we said, you know what? I think we could deal with half the gathering, a third of the gathering, a quarter of the gathering. So for your sake and the sake of your people, because it's not just about what you get when you come to a worship service, it's about building up the body. We gather together on Wednesday night and we pray for the lost and we pray for the sick and we pray for the needy and we pray for the health of this church. I want you to be here to be a part of that. We, we preach the word. I sit on my fanny. I say fanny. I sit right here and we're working together through the Psalms. Do you think God has any goodness for you in his Psalms? On Sunday night, we're working through an Old Testament book of Judges. You think God's got anything to say to you in the book of Judges? So all I'm asking you to do is consider what you're going to do tonight is going to be of more benefit to your eternity than being here with the people of God. I would encourage you, if at all possible, to be here and see if you're not blessed. But more than that, see if the body is not built up.
and blessed by this. I promise I study the word. I don't come and wing it. I say all that because those of you that have been here on Wednesday nights, that have been working through the Psalms with us, you know how many times King David talks about hiding himself in God. Oftentimes he will use this. This week, Psalm 57 that we studied together, he talked about hiding himself under the wing of God. Like a mother hen gathers her chicks because we're pitiful. We need mercy. We suffer when we're outside of him. That's the picture. The helplessness of man in need of the goodness of God. That's what it means for God to be merciful towards us. Psalm 103, 13 says, as a father shows compassion, that's the same root word for mercy. As a father shows mercy or compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. That we're a poor and pitiable people. People can do nothing for ourselves, like a dead man can do nothing for ourselves unless God shows up and does it. And we praise God that he does. We praise God that his nature that his nature is one of mercy. That he looks upon us in our pitiable state, in our desperate state, in our, in our suffering state, and he remembers our nature that we are but dust. He knows our makeup. So that God comes to us in our weakness, and he comes to us in our sorrow, and he comes to us in our sadness, in our brokenness, in our pain, and he pours his goodness into our life, and that is mercy. That comes from the nature within him. But you'll be pleased to know that this mercy of God, this goodness of God towards men who suffer, it doesn't only come when you suffer at the hands of other men. It comes when you're the cause of the suffering. And that's where we see it most beautifully. Because again, going back to our study in Psalms, how often does King David say, my enemies set a trap for me and it ensnared them? That's a picture of sin. We rebuke God. We reject God. We, we spurn his glory. And who gets snagged up in this? Does God become any less glorious when we spit on him? When we curse his name? Oh, no. Who gets snared by that trap? It is us. And yet the God of the universe looks to you and says, even as you have rejected me and you have placed yourself under this wrath, you have placed yourself under my judgment, you have placed yourself in this place of suffering, you can call out to me and still my goodness will come. I will look upon you with pity and with compassion and my goodness will come because I'm a merciful God. It's what we see the, the tax collector trusting in in Jesus' parable where the tax collector, he stands in the temple far away off and he beats his chest and he cries out to God. What does he say? God, give me what I deserve. God, pour your goodness into my life because someone else has forced me into this situation. No, what does he say? God, have mercy on me. Have pity on me. Have compassion on me. Pour your goodness into my life. Why? Because I'm a sinner. It's remarkable. Perhaps you've grown up in the church too long, as have I, to take mercy as a thing for granted. Is it mercy worth a thing? Again, I say that God owes us. Of course God forgives. Of course he's merciful. Of course he's good to those who are trapped in their own sin. That's what God does. We need to remind ourselves that mercy is a thing that God owes to no one. Again, remembering everything that we've just said about man. Every way in which we have turned our life in opposition to him. Not just walking a different direction from him, but being in enmity with God. Haters of God. 
That God owes this mercy, this goodness to no one. And that's what it means when we speak of mercy or we speak of grace. Grace is not grace. And mercy is not mercy if it's owed to anyone. And grace is not grace and mercy is not mercy if anyone can demand it. You see, beloved, there is a thing that we're owed. God spoke very expressly about that. The wages of sin. What is a wage? It's a thing that you've earned. It's a thing that you've owed. And the wages of sin are death. So if we want God to give us what we are owed or what we deserve, then it's nothing but death. And that's the picture that he paints of man here, isn't it? Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He says, you're on a path to payday. Friday's coming, your check's coming, and it's wrath. That's what you're owed. But with regards to mercy or grace, it's completely unmerited. It's the unmerited goodness and kindness of God towards men who suffer, even those who suffer because of their own sin. Even those who suffer because they have rejected him as Lord. And I think that's why the Apostle Paul begins with the word mercy rather than love. Love is an affinity for someone. Love is an affectionate, uh, an affection towards someone. If, if we just talked about the love of God, again, we'd be tempted to think that maybe there was something lovable in us. Maybe there was something lovely about us. But given the picture that he just painted, we know that can't be true. So he's got to begin with something else. Something explains why in the world would God love us? The answer is found in his nature of mercy. Something completely unexpected and unwarranted. Again, I say ground in the nature of God, not in the nature of man. And as such, just as no man can demand mercy for himself, just as no man can demand this goodness from God in spite of our sin, God is also free to give it to whom he chooses. Just because God gives mercy to one man does not mean that another man can uh, demand equal mercy and equal goodness into his life. I want to work through the Old Testament and show you some passages where he makes this clear. I want you to think about the golden calf incident in Exodus 32. You'll remember that God was furious with his people after all he had done. All of his goodness towards him and freeing them from slavery. And the mighty works of his hand and the parting of the Red Sea. And he brings them to this place. And no sooner has he brought them there than they believe that they can worship him any way they see fit by making a golden calf. And calling that Yahweh who has led them out of Israel. And you remember what God said to Moses. He said, move away from them that my wrath may burn hot against them. Basically, step back, Moses. I'm about to act. Payday's coming quick this time. I'm about to burn them up in my anger. And we know that Moses interceded. Moses went before God, and what did he say? Hey, they're not that bad. Hey, they're kind of lovable. Hey, look at all the potential. Look at all the potential. Just think of what you could do with these people. No, 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 no. What does he plead? Exodus 32, 13. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self. What does he plead? The character of God. So the scripture tells us that the Lord relented of the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So Moses comes and he speaks to the people and he says, guys, I'm going to go to God and, and make atonement for this. He goes to God and God says, very well, pack up and lead this people to the promised land. But listen to what he says. Verse, Exodus 33, verse 3. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. 
God says, very well, I'm going to lead you to this promised land. I won't destroy you. Not only will I not destroy you, but I'm going to leave you to lead you to the land of promise. A place you didn't prepare, a place that I had allowed these people to build up for you. I'm going to lead you into this place because I made a promise to your fathers. But I can't go with you because if I go with you, I'm going to consume you. Because I know your makeup. I know who you are. You see, God wasn't confused. God didn't look to these people and say, well, I believe you. You'll do better this time. He says, no, you're stiff-necked. I know who you are and I know how this thing plays out. Just as he was with Noah. You remember, why did God destroy the, uh, the earth in the days of Noah? Because the, the, uh, uh, the something of men's heart, the intent of men's heart was only continually evil. Thank you. What did God say after the flood? When he made the covenant, I will never again destroy the earth. The intent of man's heart is only continually evil. He knew that the intent of men's heart had not changed. God likewise knows right here, you people are the same people that I called out. And if I go with you, I'm going to burn you up. My wrath will burn hot against you. So again, Moses pleads with God. He says, God, how will we know that you're with us? Is not your presence with us the only sure sign to the people we're going to? And to ourselves that we have your blessing, that your promise is going to come true. So God says, very well, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. Well, how's that going to work exactly? Time out, God. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't know that I actually mean that, God. You just said if you go with us, you're going to eat us. You're going to consume us. You're going to destroy us in your wrath. I said, well, but I'd rather you go with me. And you said, okay, fine, I'll go. But wait a minute. Doesn't that just mean you're going to kill us? Doesn't that mean you're just going to destroy us? So it's at that point that Moses says, God, please show me your glory. See, when I was a kid, I always thought Moses just wanted a special glimpse of something. Was it maybe something he could lord over the Israelites? Hey, I've seen the face of God and you have not. Therefore, you must trust me. No, people were terrified of the face of God. Don't you remember what happened when God spoke from with, on the top of the mountain? They looked at Moses and said, you go talk to him. We, we can't even bear to hear his voice any longer. He wasn't having to lord something over the people. I think given the scenario, given the situation, given the context of this story, I think it's clear what's happening. He's saying, God, if you're not going to consume us, if you're going to do what I'm asking you to do, if you're going to bless us with your presence and lead us into the promised land, then our only hope is that there's something in you and not in us. So I got to see you. That's what it means. To, I want to see your glory. I want to see your face. I want to see your nature. Help me understand, God, how you're not going to consume us in your, in your wrath. That's what he's asking for here. Because he knew, just like God, these are a bunch of lawbreakers. I know what they're going to do. And so, of course, God says, look, you can't see the fullness of my glory and live. Your brain would explode. Your face would melt. No man can look upon the glory of God, the face of God, and live. But he says this, Exodus 33, 19. But God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. I'll allow my goodness to pass before you. And Moses might have been tipped at that point to say, wait, are we going where we think we're going? Aren't you going to destroy all these Amorites? Aren't you going to wipe out the people's of the land and God says I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and I'll have mercy to whom I'll have mercy. He's looking to Moses and he says my goodness towards these people the reason that I will not consume them along the way the reason I continue with them and lead them into the promised land is because I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy 
It was never bound up in you, Moses. Don't you understand? I never thought you were the perfect people. I never thought you were going to become the perfect people this side of heaven. I know who you are. I know your makeup. I know you are but dust. And I am the God who gives mercy to whom I will give mercy. Beloved, don't you see how this isn't just an explanation? It's an encouragement. Because if you can earn the mercy of God, if you can earn the goodness of God, if you can earn the compassion of God, then you can lose it. Do you see what a blessing it is for him to say, you could have never in my goodness. I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. And I've chosen you. Be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. And I've chosen you. But why? Why them? Why not the Amorites? Why not the Perizzites or the Hittites or the Jebusites or any of the ites? Why didn't he choose? Maybe Judy Height. <laughs> that just came to me. You're a good one, Judy. Why them? Well, 40 years later, we, we know what happened with this stiff-necked people. They proved to be stiff-necked. So, so 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, and now finally they've all died off, and the next generation is just about ready to come into the promised land. And we read this in Deuteronomy 7. For your people holy unto the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasure possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I've chosen you to be a treasured people amongst all the peoples on the earth. Why? It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. Well, then why, Lord? Why have you chosen me? Why have you set your love upon me? For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loves you. God, why do you love me? Because I love you. But I want another answer. It's the one you got. Recognizing that there was nothing lovable in us. Completely dependent upon the love of God. I love you because I love you. And I'm keeping the oath that I swore to your fathers. God, why is your mercy fallen upon me? Because I loved you. Why did you love me? Because I loved you. And because I've sworn an oath to keep you in this love. I've bound my glory and my nature and my name to pouring out this love upon you. That's why God has chosen you. That's why God has bestowed this mercy upon you. And he's so tied it to his own nature that he could no more pull back from that than he could deny himself. He could repudiate his own glory. And this is a promise not just for the Old Testament people of God. It's a promise that carries on all the way into the New Covenant, all the way into the New Testament. That God says, the way that you can know, the way that you can be sure, the way that you can have confidence that I will not consume you in my wrath is you look to me. You look to my nature and my promises and my love. That's what he says in Hebrews 6, 17. So when God desired, he's talking about Father Abraham, but it says that when God desired to show more convincingly, more convincingly, he wants to convince us of something here. He wants to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise. This isn't just Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. This isn't just Moses and King David. This is us, the heirs of the promise. He wants to show us something with conviction. How does he do that? He wants to show us the unchanging character of his promise. So to do this, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge. We therefore might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have this. 
is a sure and steadfast anchor to our soul. And he goes on talking about Christ Jesus behind the veil. But he's saying, look, I want to encourage you. I want you to have this steadfast hope. I want you to cling. I want to convince you more strongly. And what do I do? Do I point you in any way to yourself? Anything that you have done, any promises that you have made, any services that you have carried out, any kind of inward inspection? No. Where do I direct you to? Me. I swore by me. And I don't change. And I don't lie. Therefore, whenever you're waning in your hope, in your assurance, in your courage, where do you think that means we look? To him. We come to the word of God desperate to see his face. Because the longer you look in the mirror, the more discouraged you're going to become. But if you can look to him and see his face and say, ah, yes, this is the merciful God who has set me apart. Why did he set me apart? I need to get back to that state, right? When I, was, when I was thin and fit and handsome, my wife loved me. i got to get back thin and fit and handsome. Then my wife's going to love me. And she goes, no, 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 no. I loved you because I loved you. You didn't do anything then. You don't need to do anything now. But that's the hope he gives us here. And that brings us, I think, to one more word of, of mercy that we find in the Old Testament. It's the one that's used... It's translated steadfast love often, but it's also translated mercy at times. And it's the word has said. 245 times you will find the word has said in the Old Testament. We see it whenever God finally puts Moses in the cleft of the rock and he passes by him, allows him to see his backward parts. He pronounces his name. He says this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love has said. And faithfulness. It's a loyal love. It, it can be translated mercy or kindness or goodness. But faithfulness and loyalty seem to ring most loud and clear. It's a loyal and a persistent love. It's a pursuing love. It's a love that doesn't let go. It's a love that chases down the beloved to do good for her. It's a committed love. Psalm 136, that's your homework this week. Go home and read Psalm 136 and you'll find it 26 times. At the end of each verse, it concludes with, His has said endures forever. Why? And I want you to look at the gamut, the full gamut of things that the psalmist runs through here. God created the heavens and the earth. Why? It's a picture of His has said. It's a picture of His steadfast love and His goodness towards pitiful people. Undeserving people. Do you understand? That's why I love the moon. I look to the moon and I say, I see his steadfast love. Why do he make it pretty? Why do he make it where I can see it? Why do he make it where it provides the light? He loves us. Why does he love us? Because he loves us. It's a beautiful word, has said. I pray that your marriage is more marked by has said than anything else. Steadfast love and goodness in spite of who deserves what. We see a picture, I think, most clearly of said this steadfast love, this mercy towards undeserving people playing out in the life of um, Hosea and his bride Gomer. I want you to think about the picture of extravagant and, and, and pursuing and persistent love in the face of just grotesque sin. Remembering that Hosea knew exactly who Gomer was. We studied that one, I don't know, maybe six months ago on Sunday night, the minor prophet of Hosea. And you'll remember the story that God comes to this prophet. He says, you're going to marry an unchaste woman. You're going to marry a woman that 
either already is not faithful, but certainly will not be faithful within your marriage. He knew what he was getting into. And yet we see this picture of pursuit and purchasing her at incredible price by this man and then bringing her back and not just bringing her back into his home to be a slave, but rubbing her feet and feeding her grapes and writing her love songs. The picture of God's steadfast love towards his undeserving people. And so we, as we get to the end of that, I stopped short. Um, we didn't finish the book, of, the book of Hosea. So we haven't studied together Hosea chapter 11, but there's a beautiful passage there where God is, of course, the picture that he was painting, he didn't just want to set a prophet up to an unhappy marriage. He was painting a picture to Israel of who he was and, and to who they were. And so this, this book that was written right before Israel is about to be led away, God's going to discipline them. The Assyrians are coming. They're right at the doorstep and they're going to lead these people away into exile. And they need to know more than anything that although God disciplines, although he punishes those who are his, that's that small faithful remnant, he will cling to them because he loved them. Why does he love them? Because he loved them. He needs them to hear of his goodness and his, his steadfast love towards them. And so listen to these words. If these don't cause you to want to jump and scream, I got nothing else for you. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zebulun? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy Ephraim. For I am a God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in my wrath. We're all a bunch of gomers. We're all a bunch of unchaste women. We're all a bunch of faithless brides. Right before this, at the beginning of Hosea chapter 11, he says, when Israel was a child, I loved him and called him out of Egypt as my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. And they kept sacrificing to Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk and took them up by their arms. You were a little baby. He taught you to ride your bike and he called you like a boy and he tied your shoe and he fixed your boo-boos and he fed you and he diapered you and he, he kept you alive. He said, I did all these things, but they did not know that it was I who healed them. That it was I who with cords of kindness and bands of love became to them as one who led them in the path that they must go. Do you see this? The more I pressed against them, the more I came to them in my goodness, the more they rejected my goodness. And yet they've got to know that even now, as I lead them away into exile, they've got to know that I can't abandon them. Listen to this. Oh, Ephraim. Oh, Israel. How could I destroy you? You're like a son to me. I've loved you because I've loved you. So I will not come in my wrath. Not because you're lovable. Because something within me, the mercy that is within me has fallen upon you. see it again in the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. The question that we should be asking is very well, this, this steadfast love, this mercy of God has fallen on me, at least for a season, but how can I be sure that it won't, wait, it won't fade away? How can I be sure that God won't stop short? How can I be sure? Because look, I've done, some, I've done some awful things, and I know that apart from the grace of God, there's more awful things out on the horizon. I know that unless God does something to keep me, I would fall away in a moment. I know that I would run from him. I know that there is no act of evil and sin that has not found some seed of something within my heart. So how can I be sure that he's not going to send me away? 
So we see this beautiful passage here. This is hundreds of years later. The people have come back. This is now late 5th century B.C. The people have already come back. They've already rebuilt under Zerubbabel. They've already rebuilt the temple under Nehemiah. They've already rebuilt the wall. But the same sins are still there. They're not all that different. They're still continuing on in the same way. And so the text begins, this, this Malachi, the last of the minor prophets, it begins with God reminding the people, I've shown so much love to you. And the people say, well, how have you loved us? And he says, didn't I choose Jacob over Esau? What do you mean, how have I loved you? I chose you despite the fact there was no difference between you and the rest of the world. I had mercy on whom I will have mercy, and my mercy fell on you. I loved you because I loved you. What do you mean, how have I loved you? He reminds them of this. And this, this whole thought, of course, is your minds are already going to Romans 9, right? It's, it's carrying you forward there to this reminder that he chose them before they had done good or bad. Why did he choose them before they had been born and done either good or bad? To make clear, I loved you because I loved you. I have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. It's not anything in you. It's not anything you've done or will do. It's not because you're pretty or have potential. And so he looks to the people and he says this, Malachi 3. Because they're continuing in their evil and in their sin. He says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, put a pin in that. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He's going to go on to describe this day. He says, for behold, the day comes burning like an oven. When the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. And the day that comes shall burn them up says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave neither root nor branch. So we ought to be hearing this and saying, I am arrogant. I have done evil. Who can stand? If the refiner is going to come and consume all that which has done evil and all that which has done wrong, who can possibly stand on that day? How will I not be destroyed? And this is one of those areas, if you're looking at it in your own Bible, this is one of those areas where the little headings that we have inserted, the church has inserted after the fact, break up the flow of the argument, and you completely lose what he's talking about here. He's saying, who can stand at the day of the Lord's coming? What confidence can I have that he's not going to stop short? What assurance can I have that I will not be consumed in his wrath? Now, you've got a big old break there that makes it look like these don't belong together. But they do. Because what you find in uh, Malachi 3.6 are these words, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. How can I know he's not going to consume me? Can I look to his character? How I know he's not going to show up different when the day comes? Because he doesn't change. Do you understand? The unchanging nature of God, it is the greatest torment to those who continue in their sin. The greatest torment of all time to those who are found outside of Christ. He doesn't change and he comes in wrath. But for those who are inside for those on whom his mercy has fallen, for those that he loves because he loves you, he says, you will not be consumed in that final day because I do not change. So that all our hope is bound up in him. Our hope of his mercy. Our hope of the enduring nature of that mercy. Our hope that he will carry us on to the very end and will not consume us in the day of judgment. It is all found in him. So what do we do? We look to him. What do we do when someone comes to us stuck in their sin and outside of Christ and desperate for forgiveness? What do we do? We point them to him. What do we do when a believer is struggling in their faith and they can't see how God could possibly love them? We look at them and say, that's right, because there's nothing lovable in you. But he loved you because he loved you. 
And then when they get to the end of their life and I'm there at the deathbed of a saint and, the, and God's about to call them home, and what words do I say to them? The Lord doesn't change. Therefore, you will not be consumed. It's all in him. Every single bit wrapped up in the nature of God. That's what it takes to become, to go from being sons of disobedience and children of wrath to those who are now seated in the heavenly places with an eternity stored up. It's all wrapped up in him. So we keep our eyes fixed there, knowing that once that mercy has fallen upon us, once that love has fallen upon us, it's a done deal. I said this quote before and it confused a lot of you. I think I heard feedback from people that confused a lot of them. It's um, the hymn writer. I don't remember his first name. Love, lady. Uh, no. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. This isn't mine. He says that the saints in heaven are indeed happier, but in no way more secure than we. Let me say it again. The saints in heaven are indeed happier, but in no way more secure than we are. This does not mean that the saints in heaven are insecure. It means that we are just as secure as they are. Are they happier than us? Oh, I bet they are. I bet they are. But their salvation, those who have stepped across the threshold, those who have left this earth and are literally seated in the presence of the Most High God, singing worship night and day, day and night, they are in no way more secure in their eternity than we are in ours because the love of God has fallen upon us and he doesn't change. And his love was never wrapped up in you. Therefore, there's nothing you can do to lose it. We can trust that he'll endure us to the end. So you sit here today as one who is already in heaven. Do you understand what that means? Do you understand the encouragement that should give you? The confidence that should give you? Well, this is the picture. We're always looking to something objective outside of ourselves and never to anything subjective within us. Because the moment that you do, one of the questions that we ask on Monday in our staff meeting, we talk about some pretty deep, heavy theological things. One of the questions that often gets asked by one staff member is, why are we asking this? Why does it matter? Because we'll wrestle and we'll wrestle and we'll wrestle, and the reality is we're wrestling with heavy things of God that you can't get to the end of. You're never going to just put a button in and go, good, I'm glad I figured out the infinitude of God. That was a good meeting, guys. But... We'll get kind of to the end of ourselves, and somebody will say, well, why? Why does this even matter? What's the point? Well, it matters, number one, for the sake of our own confidence, but number two, because every time you take your eyes off of him and place them onto yourself, you open the door for the devil to come in and cause you to doubt the goodness and love of God. To believe that you've got to earn the love of God. You've got to do something to stay in the favor of God. That's why it matters. I think I'll stop. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you that just as it was with your dealing with the Old Testament saints, so it is with us. That your mercy and your goodness and your kindness and your love, it falls on us, not because we're the biggest and the baddest and the strongest, but because you are the merciful God. Because you will have mercy on whom you will have mercy. You have loved whom you will love who you will love, and there's nothing that we could do to earn it. Therefore, there's nothing we could do to lose it. Father, I pray that you would help these people to embrace that. Help me to embrace that. Help us to live with more courage than we've ever known. Because we know that there is nothing, neither height nor depth, nor <coughs> death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor nothing in all the world that can separate us from your love. 
Because not only have you placed this love upon us, but you purchased it with the most valuable thing in all the universe, the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, encourage us with this as we go. We love you. We trust you. And we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.